0: Humanize me with Bart Campolo.
1: Hey everybody. Welcome to 2022. Happy New Year. Is this the year it gets better? I don't know. I'm actually recording this introduction on January the 6th. And that is a date that will live in infamy in this country and a date that makes me wonder if we'll ever stop having to deal with crazy people and irrational people and people who can't be dealt with. And so that actually all, you know, in my mind today is perfectly attuned to my guest today because my guest today is Mark Golston, and I have been a fan of his, un, you know, for years, many years. Um, ever since I stumbled onto his book, "Talking to Crazy: How to Deal with the Irrational and Impossible People in Your Life," and when I say stumbled onto it, I mean I was literally in a library looking at their, you know, suggested readings stack while waiting for. Um, Marty to check out with some stuff she had gotten. And I saw that title and I thought, wow, let me look at that. I mean, I know it's not politically correct to call anyone crazy, but I quickly, as soon as I picked up the book, I realized like he wasn't talking about mental illness. What he was talking about was irrational. The, the, the book is about how to deal with people who are irrational which we all are at some point we're all i guess on that definition of all crazy we're all crazy at some point in the sense of when we can't see things clearly can't see the world around us clearly and we say or think things that just don't actually make any sense and we make decisions and take actions that aren't actually in our best interests and when when we get to the place where if somebody tries to reason with us or try to gently like steer us back towards, that makes no sense. It, it makes us even more upset and we become impossible to deal with. And so I pick up this book, I'm standing in the library, I pick up this book and I had one of those moments where I'm reading the first page and I can absolutely remember what was on the first page of the book. It's sort of like, Moby Dick, call me Ishmael, the first line, or Anna Karenina, you know, all all unhappy families are, all happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. You know, these kind of memorable openings that, that stick with you forever. And, and with this book, it wasn't a a line, it was a story. Because at the beginning of the book, he says, look, you know, dealing with crazy people, with people who are temporarily insane because something's just upset them so much is a lot like dealing with a dog that bites your hand. Your instinct is to pull away. But if you pull away, the dog will only dig its teeth in deeper and you'll get worse hurt. But if you counterintuitively, instead of pushing away, you push your hand deeper into the dog's mouth. You push down its throat. The dog will release your hand because in order to, to, to do what it wants to do next, which is to swallow your hand, it, it has to release its jaw. And that's when you pull your hand out. And, and Golston said, dealing with irrational people is very much like that. If you try to deal with them like they're rational, if you try to reason with an irrational person, they'll go nuts. But if you lean into their crazy, If you go with their crazy, you change the dynamic. And then he told this story and I've always remembered it. He said he was uh, having a really frustrating day and at work. And when he got home, he was just sort of mind when when he was done the day, he got in the car to drive home and he was just driving kind of mindlessly down, you know, down the road on his way home. And uh, he lives in Los Angeles, which is not, you know, I lived in Los Angeles, it's not a place to drive absentmindedly. And sure enough, as he was going down this, this kind of big highway, he cut off another driver who he said was a large man and his wife in a pickup truck. So he cuts off this huge guy in a pickup truck and the guy, you know, honks and flips him off and yells at him and he waves like, oh, sorry, 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 as you do. And, uh, and the guy, you know, he drove on. And he didn't think about it again. He said half a mile later, he does the same exact thing. He cuts off a a driver and it's the same guy in the same pickup truck. And this time the guy like freaks out and the guy accelerates around him and stops his car, like literally drives him off to the side of the road and makes him stop. He like forces him off the road. And the guy's wife is saying like, don't get out of the car. And, and, and he, he gets out of the car. This guy's like six foot something, weighs about 300 pounds. And, uh, and he comes over to Mark's car and he starts banging on it and screaming obscenities and I'm going to kill you and all this stuff. And uh, Mark says he was so out of it that he actually rolled down his window to talk to the guy, which was not a smart thing to do. And, and he said, but then in a moment, he, like in a moment of kind of like genius, when the guy pauses in his cursing and is just about ready to, to pull him out of the car, he says, have you ever had such an awful day that you're just hoping to meet somebody who will pull out a gun and shoot you and put you out of my misery, put you out of your misery? Like, cause Are you that guy for me? I need somebody to shoot me dead. And he said, the guy's mouth fell open. And, uh, and and it's funny. He said, like you know, he said I feel like if I had tried to reason with the guy, and said like, look, buddy, I'm. So, he said the guy would have pulled me out and pummeled me. But he said the guy just stared at him. And and he said he started up again. He said, I mean it. I mean I don't usually cut people off, let alone twice in one day. I'm, He said, but but I'm having a terrible day. This is no matter what happens today, it goes wrong. And everyone I meet, I mess up and including you. And are you going to just put an end to it for me? Please just kill me. And he said, instantly, the guy's anger dissipated. And and, and he started trying to, and, and this huge guy is trying to calm him down. He goes, hey, man, it'll be okay. Calm down. It'll be, just relax. It's okay. Everybody has a bad day. And he said he ended up talking with this guy for a couple of minutes. And the guy was trying to calm him down. And finally, the guy got it back into his truck and and he looked in the rearview mirror and sort of gave him a wave like, hey buddy, remember, relax, it's okay, you're okay, and drove off. I always remember that. And Mark said like, look, that's the thing, is that that guy, if, if I'd have tried to reason with him or argue with him, it wouldn't have worked. But he did this thing, what he called assertive submission, where he's like very strongly saying, You're in charge, buddy. I'm at your mercy. And uh and I read that story, I remember thinking, there's something here. And 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 the book, I mean, he ends up having like 57 different strategies for how to deal with irrational people. Because I don't I don't know that there really are any other kind of people than irrational people, or at least people that are temporarily irrational. I mean, Sam Harris is the most rational guy I've ever encountered in public life. And yet when Sam Harris gets angry, or I'm sure in Sam Harris's house, I'm sure there are days when Sam Harris acts completely out to lunch. And the question is, what do you do with somebody in your life? And then there's some of us that have people that are like that all the time. You know, an aging parent who, who suddenly is like, you don't care about me. And you're like, all I do is care about you. You know, an employee who melts down on the job, a a child who's, who just keeps saying, I hate you. I hate you. Um, A partner who stops speaking to you. How do you deal with people like that? Every day, crazy. And, uh. Mark's book ended up being super helpful to me. And so I I've always been sort of a, a, a big fan of his. And the other day, John and I were talking about kind of boundary issues with crazy people. Like how do you how do you prevent somebody who in your life is really difficult for you for, for from taking over your life and for make for making things, you know, how, Well, you know what boundaries are. How do you, how do you set a boundary with somebody and how do you, how do you maintain a boundary with somebody who you can't really reason with? And you know, a lot of the people that write to me on this podcast, you know, are people that are in relationships with family members who are in some way irrational, sometimes hyper-religiously irrational, and they're they, they won't allow them in their house or they won't, they cut them off from their children or they they think they're going to hell. And they, and so they, they won't stop talking to them about, about stuff or, you know, Trump irrational and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And as we were talking about it and like, how could we help some of our listeners figure some stuff out? I thought, wait, Mark Olston I wonder if he would talked to me. And so John reached out to him and sure enough, Mark was super gracious. And so what I'm going to share with you is this conversation that I have with Mark Olston. He's a psychiatrist by trade and he spent 25 years as a psychiatrist and, and teaching psychiatry at UCLA out in LA back where I used to be. But he's also a guy who's written a gazillion books and, um, Some of them huge bestsellers. I mean, I think the two most popular books are Just Listen, which is about how to listen to people in such a way as to them really feeling heard and really feeling understood and and in a sense, how to heal people by listening to them in this incredibly surgical empathy, he calls it, um... And then the other book talking to crazy. So like he's got both halves of the conversation covered. Here's how you talk. Here's how you listen. Uh, his most recent book is why cope when you can heal. And it, he wrote it during COVID kind of aimed at all the people, that, especially people in the healthcare profession who are dealing with PTSD. And he sort of says like, we often teach people coping skills, how to deal with their trauma. But he said, we, we're not always as good at talking about healing skills and and so there's some real gold in this conversation, and I'm, I'm excited for you to meet Mark. Um, Mark also has a podcast that is kind of really cool because the podcast is called My Wake Up Call, and it's all about talking to people, sometimes even very famous people, Um about the moment in their life where something happened that woke them up and caused a big change. And of course, many, you know, many of you know, the kind of wake up calls that we've had, Um, whether it's a, a, a kind of a, oh gosh, I don't think I believe what I used to believe anymore. Or, oh my gosh, this relationship that I'm in is toxic. Or, oh my gosh, like I could make so much more of my life if I decided to make it about loving other people instead of amassing power and what, and money. And so, you know, he's a person who's, I think like a lot of us is really dedicated to how do I make relationships work in such a way that they really give life to other people and fill me with a sense of joy and power, like empowerment in the sense of like, I am capable of inflicting joy on other people. That might be a cool phrase inf- to inflict joy. I don't know. Maybe maybe inflict is too vicious a word by itself. But I just like the idea of like we always talk about inflicting pain, but what about inflicting joy or inflicting happiness on someone? I don't know. I'm I, you know if, if if you're listening and and you think you like that phrase, you know I love to hear from you. And it's 2022, so I'm I'm, I'm beginning the long promised task of going around and talking to all the Patreon people that support the podcast individually. So if you're on the Patreon list, you're going to be hearing from me through an email or through a phone call or somehow I will get, I will get you and I will thank you and you can't escape it because I, you know, I just am so grateful for the people that listen and the people that support the show, the people that make it possible for us to keep this conversation going because it's been a really rich conversation. And I think it's going to be some of the guests that we have lined up, some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about moving forward. I just think it's going to continue to be a rich conversation as we try to figure out how to shake off the, what's the word that they're called? Oh, languishing. Yeah. The New York Times had this great article about languishing. It said COVID had caused a lot of us to be languishing. And I thought, boy, that's a good word for how I've I've, I've felt and what I'm trying to shake off. And, and I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about in 2022 is how we either get back to or get to for the first time a way of relating to other people and a way of understanding and connecting with ourselves that creates a genuine sense of energy and maybe the best way i can describe it is when i talk to depressed people they often talk about how when they when they wake up in the morning when they open their eyes there's this oh crap i got to go at it again oh crap sort of almost like I, I i thought maybe when i fell asleep last night it would be it would be the last time and that there's this dread that ha- d- dread in the morning and i think that one sign that we're not languishing anymore will be when when we open our eyes in the morning and we have a thought of like, ooh, today's the day I get to live. Today's the day I get to reach out to that person or today's the day I get to read that book or today's the day I get to really taste my food. Yeah, you know, today's the day I get to really appreciate the experience of consciousness in some new way. You're not going to become a morning person uh, just because you get your your head straight. But I think there there does come a point in each day where we sort of either realize that we wish we we wish we were still asleep, or where we're glad to be aware and awake and conscious. Uh, and sometimes consciousness is a burden, and sometimes it's painful. Um, but I think for a lot of us, it would, it, and, for, and sometimes it's blah, and people are like, ah, another day, okay, here we go. And, and I think a lot of what we're trying to do in a podcast like Humanize Me is figure out ways of relating to ourselves and to the world around us that make us uh, grateful for the opportunity and aware of the privilege. So anyway, all of that to say, um, yeah, I'll be getting around to thank you for helping me make it possible but in the meantime i wanted to share this conversation with one of my sure relationship building heroes mark golston so here we go i'll see you on the other side will i have a quote yes i will have a quote hey, mark can i call you mark you can call me mark or do you like doctor do you like dr <clears throat> golston mark mark is fine I'm so I'm so honored to meet you. I got to tell you, um, I'm just I'm just really happy that you're able to do this and willing to do this. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure you get this from people a lot, but the book "Talking to Crazy" was very significant in my life. And what happened you know? You probably don't know a doggone thing about me, which is fine. But I, I spent most of my life as an evangelical Christian minister and missionary and preacher. Mm-hmm. And about ten ten or so years ago, i sort of i i after a long sort of slow death of a thousand cuts um experience, I ended up leaving the faith and um and I ended up actually for a time i was for three years, I was out there in Los Angeles as the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. so uh spent a little time in your neck of the woods. Are you still in l a?
0: Yes. Yes. When were you at uh, USC?
1: Four years. I left there. I left there four years ago, and I was there for three years. Um, I was the first humanist chaplain they ever had. And basically, what that meant was, is I was like a campus pastor, except I was a campus pastor to all the kids who wanted to make the most of their lives, but didn't believe in God. And uh, it was it was wonderful. It was a really. It was a terrifically rich experience. I um, couldn't I couldn't figure out how to make it pay um, enough to, to be able to afford to live in Los Angeles, which is how I ended up back in Cincinnati, um, where I'd come from. But it was it was a terrific, terrific experience. And kind of my whole career for the last 10 years has been largely around helping people figure out how to make the most of their life on the other side of faith, and in particular, how to have meaningful relationships and healthy relationships with people who think really differently than they do. Um, and it was in that context that I came across talking to crazy because I kept hearing from all these, all these folks who are like, my family members are driving me crazy over the faith thing. Like they just, they're, t- I'm going to hell and, you know, things you, you, you could probably imagine or predict in, in a, in a, newly deconverted person's life. Um, and it was and it was there that i came across your book and and you know i've recommended it i've sold you a few copies i would say
0: well oh, thank you thank and, you and
1: and i've sort of followed you a little bit since then and i know you taught at ucla for 25 years were you practicing most of that time you know, i've been practicing up until about
0: 4 years ago so I'm, I'm retired status now but i write i teach i speak around the world and my personal, I have a personal mission called "Healing the World One Conversation at a Time." Yeah, and something I'll refer you and your listeners to. There's a video if you if you look up Naomi File Gladys Wilson on YouTube, and in fact, you you add the word Russia, you'll see a video with Russian subtitles, but it's in English. And whenever I speak, I play this six-minute video because it shows the incredible power of of what I'd call a, a radical attunement, radical empathy, in which you can actually almost wake someone from the dead. I suppose I shouldn't say that on this show because I don't mean it in the religious sense. But, <laughs> but Naomi, right. but Naomi works with demented patients who. Are given up on, and when you can go into their world because they can't come into your world, they attach to you. And when they attach to you, they actually may begin to make sense and start to speak. and And it's a it's a an amazing uh, a video. I fell in love with Naomi File watching that video. She must be in her nineties, and she was probably in her eighties then. But I just saw the amazing power of love, kindness, and accurate empathy. And I have a podcast called My Wake-Up Call where I I interview people. I'll probably have you on as a guest. Where I interview people about what's your purpose, what's your calling, what's your origin story, what are your wake-up calls. And tell me all about that. And I've had Larry King on, Jordan Peterson, Norman Lear. Ken Blanchard, a few people uh, that uh, the world knows about. And it's all about their purpose and calling. And I fell in love with Naomi File because of the love and kindness that she showed in that video. And so I had her on my podcast. And you can tell that she's having some cognitive issues herself. It's a certain irony because she mainly worked with demented patients. And one of the things she shared, which It shouldn't have surprised me being a therapist for so many years, but it did. Uh, She said, you know, when you're in a nursing home and demented people are yelling out or screaming, you have to shut them down because they're disruptive. You tranquilize them. And she said, really what's happening is they are just expressing uh all the baggage from their life because they can no longer suppress it because of the dementia. So, what they're saying actually makes sense if you think about it, that we all have baggage in our life. And so, they're they're not able to suppress it. And so, when they're what seems to be babbling or screaming, they're actually trying to reprocess all
1: that baggage that they can no longer suppress. Wow. You know, I I think about that. I live in an inner city and I, you know, often will be walking down the street and I'll pass somebody who's clearly mentally ill and they're just talking and saying things. And I I hadn't really thought about it as that they were reprocessing and did she figure out a way that she could sort of help or assist them in that process? Well, I think if you watch the video- with them there? I think if you
0: watch the video- You'll see it. So she's the inventor of something called validation therapy. And validation therapy is is just completely mirroring the other person. And by mirroring, I don't mean imitating. When you mirror them, they calm down, which is really in sync with another of my book, which if, if you haven't read, if you like talking to crazy, you'd probably like its predecessor, which is called Just Listen. And uh, Just Listen's in 28 languages. And one of the things, in each of my books, I introduce new concepts. And in Just Listen, I introduce the concept of the mirror neuron gap. And for people listening in who haven't heard the term mirror neurons, mirror neurons are in our brain and they were discovered in monkeys. And they were first called monkey see, monkey do neurons because they're associated with when a monkey imitates, imitates another monkey, or you can stick your tongue out at a monkey and they'll stick their tongue out back at you. So mirror neurons are associated with imitation, learning, and empathy. And when they're deficient, it's associated with autism or uh, uh, autistic uh, spectrum disorders. But what I talked about in the book, and this goes back to what I saw Naomi File doing with Gladys Wilson is it's my belief that all through life we we try to mirror the outside world sort of to get our needs met we uh, uh, we mirror other people's personalities and their desires and uh, when instead of mirroring them instead of caring about people we do the opposite we widen the mirror neuron gap so sarcasm criticism uh, putting people down yelling at people uh, rolling your
1: eyes all increase the mirror neuron gap for the other person. The, far, the In a sense, the, ga- the gap, the, the the distance between feeling like you get me, feeling like you're really w- connected with me. Exactly. Um, when you do those things, the, 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 the more you the, – the, the gap gets bigger, the less I feel like you're really hearing me, getting me, understanding me, feeling me at all. Absolutely.
0: And when I usually do presentations
1: on this – I talk
0: about one of the reasons that we cry in tearjerker movies is because we're often identifying with the protagonists and the conflicts they find themselves in. And in a recent book that I wrote, something you might also find interesting, it's called Why Cope When You Can Heal. I co-authored that during the pandemic, and it's about how to begin to heal from trauma and I introduced the term called surgical empathy. So, being a, I was a suicide specialist for 25 years, and none of my patients died by suicide. And I was trying to figure out what I did. And what I realized is well, what I've observed in most suicidal patients is at the end, they feel despair. And if you use the word despair, as in D-E-S-P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired. Uh, helpless, hopeless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless. And I was seeing a woman named Nancy, we'll call her Nancy, that wasn't her real name. Uh, And I was seeing her and she'd made three suicide attempts before I started seeing her. And she'd been in the hospital multiple times. And in early in my career, many of my patients were referred to me by probably the top suicidologist in the country, if not the world, a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And he was at UCLA and I was at UCLA. And he would do consults on still suicidal patients that needed to be discharged. Uh, And they were often patients that the residents didn't want to see as outpatients because they weren't acutely suicidal, but it was still in them. And so he... Do a consultation, and you'd refer them to me on the outside. And there was uh, this one patient who I'll call Nancy. I was seeing, and I didn't think I was helping her. And she rarely spoke, and she rarely looked into my eyes. And uh, there was a there was one Monday I came in, and I hadn't I hadn't slept for most of the weekend because I was moonlighting at a state hospital, covering for other psychiatrists. And I come in on a Monday, and there she is not you know not looking at me and suddenly all the color in the room turned to black and white as i'm looking out in the room it's black and white and i begin to get the chills and i thought i was having a stroke or a seizure so i did a neurologic exam on myself i'm tapping my knees i'm tapping my elbows and i realize i'm all here i'm not having a stroke or hmm. seizure And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world and feeling it through Nancy's feelings in her eyes. So because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I wouldn't. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Yeah, I'll I'm miss scared. you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get get, uh, get rid of the pain. And I thought, oh my God, I just gave her permission to kill herself. And she looked at me, and she looked right at me. She grabbed onto my eyes with her eyes, and I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, Nancy, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. So can you see how that's a way of connecting with people and how they can, when you non-judgmentally connect and connect with them in their deepest pain and you don't think they're weak? and you understand why there's some pain that's so awful you'll think of self destruction as a way to get out of it
1: yeah it's so interesting that you should say that cuz you know it's funny i before we talked i listened to you giving a a a short ted talk about um smiling about mm-hmm. you know uh I, I forget what, what it made was, you smile today. Uh, what made you smile today and and you you told a, a story not not unlike that one. Do you, do you remember that story? Oh yeah, no, no, I, I remember it well. yeah, yeah, yeah. I because yeah. I mean, it, it, it was a similar kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. so if you're listening in uh, there's a TEDx talk and you can find it. It's what made you smile today. And I lead off by sharing the story of a friend of mine who had a daughter who was on drugs and very manipulative. And he told me, um, I can't stand it when she calls me because she's always trying to manipulate me, but I'm not making it any better. And then he decided to start texting her every day at 5 p.m. And he would text her and say, hey, honey, it's dad. Uh, What made you smile today? And initially, she thought, uh, oh, she could manipulate him for money. And he said, no, 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 no. We've gone down that road. No more money. And he just kept doing it. And a couple months later, uh, she responded to one of the texts by just simply saying, what made me smile today was knowing that you would text me. And that shifted things because, see, she felt like a burden. And the point is, it was her lying that was a burden. She wasn't a burden. He loved his daughter, but he couldn't stand her lying all the time. And when she saw that he cared about her, uh, which was, uh, you know, because it was feeling uncared about, that kind of led her to her agitation and her anger and her acting out. But when she felt he really cares about me, then there was less of a need for her to use drugs to escape feeling like a burden because she realized she wasn't a burden anymore
1: when she was off drugs after a couple months. And, and, and I mean, the, the through line in that is, is that a lot of times the behavior, whether it's suicidality or addiction or you know sometimes it can be bad relationships and all sorts of things, that a lot of times people are driven to the behavior that we're so upset by, by a simpler feeling of nobody gets me, or nobody cares for me, and that when we when we address that that fundamental need, sometimes their 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 need to to do the negative thing diminishes. No, that's absolutely true. Huh? You know, it's funny because you know, as, as I'm I'm listening to this, I, I mean, you've written this book about how to talk to people, and then you've written this other book about listening, um, and and you, you know, you you mention this you know, healing the world one conversation at a time. And it seems to me that you are, it, it seems like good conversations or good connections between people seems to be your life work. Oh, absolutely. And and I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, for starters, you know, th- not to flip the script on you, but like, how did you come to be so committed to relationships? How did you come to believe so much in the healing power of relationships and the importance of, of conversation? Where, where did that come from in your life?
0: One of my greatest accomplishments is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that many people who dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I think it was for untreated depression. And the first time I dropped out, I went and worked in some blue-collar uh, jobs, which I to this day I love. They were just so simple. I would go out, do some, you know, heavy lifting, and then you know, not take it home with me. I mean, I, I didn't take any worries home with me. And and then I went back, and my mind worked at about a blue-collar level, but that wasn't good enough for medical school. So after six months, I sought to drop out again. And the dean of the medical school, who was more, more focused on funding and keeping the medical school going financially than on students, met with me. And I don't really remember the meeting, but I was pretty down. And I got a call from the dean of students, Dean uh, William McNary. Uh, we nicknamed him Mac. He was an Irish, Boston Irish Catholic, Mac. And Mac called me. He said, uh, and he had a thick Boston accent. He said, Mac Mac this is Mac got a letter here from the uh, the dean you better come in here Mac so I go in there and I was at a low point he said Mac read the letter so I looked at the letter and it's some um, and it said I have met with Mr. Gulston uh we talked about a different career and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw and I said what does this mean and he said Mark, you've been kicked out. And it was it was as if a, I felt a gunshot wound. It's like, literally, I kind of folded over. I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. And I'm not religious, but I am. I guess people say, Mark, you're spiritual. Accept it. Because I, I felt something wet on my cheekbones, and I thought it was blood, but it was actually tears. Uh, mm. And and, uh, and I think I was just raw and vulnerable and exposed. And, and I came from a background where your only value is what you do in life. If you don't do anything, you're not worth much. And you know, I probably was at a point where I didn't think I could do much. And he says to me, Mac, uh, you didn't mess up, meaning you're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think the school would one day be glad they gave you a second chance. And even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything else, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know it till you're 35. And you deserve to be on this planet. Um, and you're going to let me help you. And it was inter- it's interesting because I'm thinking, he was my first mentor. And because I didn't like to ever burden anyone with whenever I was down, kind of kept things to myself, I've been trying to figure out why did he do that? For for years, for decades, I was trying to figure out why did he do that? Because he really didn't know me. I mean, even though I consider him a life saving mentor, you know, I, I probably had a total of two or three hours of FaceTime with him over the six years it finally took me to become a a doctor. But then I think I discovered a clue during the first year when I dropped out. Uh, I wrote a poem that got published in a, you know, a minor, uh, it was a geriatric psychiatry journal. And I think I must have sent it to him, so this is the first time I dropped out, which they allow you. I can understand, the second time you drop out, they want to cut their losses. I have uh, no grudge or negative feelings towards the dean of the school who thought, hey, he's wanting to drop out a second time, he'll never be a doctor. But, uh, but I wrote this poem, and I'm going to read it, read the last stanza of it, because I think you'll catch the irony and maybe why Dean McNary took a chance on me. So the poem is called Lament for the Old. And I wrote this when I was uh, 20, uh, 24. And I'm now 73. So I'm, I'm basically three times the age of when I wrote this. And here's the last stanza. I then took the time to get to know some of these marvelous people three times my age who offered a wealth of experience that spanned hundreds of years. What was so obviously missing was someone to share the fullness of the past and to help relieve the loneliness of the future and maybe someone to give a damn when they died. So I, so I think he. Yeah. So I mean, he, it probably touched him, and it's really ironic because I'm not three times my age when I wrote that. But, <laughs> but what happened is I then took that year off, and I went to something called the a place called the Menninger Foundation, which is still around. It's a famous psychiatric. Foundation. And in those days, it was in Topeka, Kansas. Now I think the base is in Houston, but it's all through the Midwest. And and it was one of the main places that trained psychiatrists after World War II. So there weren't that many psychiatric training programs after World War II. And it was there where I discovered that, you know, I seemed to be able to connect with these schizophrenic farm boys in Topeka, Kansas. I grew up in a suburb of Boston. And so I, I found that I had sort of a knack and an ability. So, knowing that, I went back to medical school, finished, and then I went on to train uh, in psychiatry at UCLA. But I think because of what that Dean of Students, what Mac did for me, uh, I paid it forward for 25 years. And I think I did for them what he did for me. You know, I, I saw potential in them, I saw goodness in them. Uh, And I wouldn't let go, and I'd go to bat for them. And I think when you feel that coming in, you you can be helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting to me because it seems like Mac, that poem probably was really determinative because he didn't just see general, vague, like, oh, you're a good guy, everybody's a good guy. He saw a very specific thing, and that is that you – Recognized that what these people, these older people, that you were seeing, what they really were longing for was connection and and somebody to, to, to feel gotten, you know. And you're, you know, even if you couldn't relieve their pain, if you could enter into it, they would feel less alone. And you know, that's a very specific kind of goodness. And I I, I can imagine him reading that and thinking, wait a second. This guy could be really good. This is a very specific kind of goodness that, again, you know, may not manifest completely till he's thirty five, but he saw it coming. yeah
0: uh, and, and there's you know, and, and and there's a physical reason why feeling gotten by other people helps. Uh, uh, so i'm I'm a bit of a uh, kind of amateur uh, neuropsychologist. so I'm not a researcher. But some things that I have learned are that when you feel that someone gets you emotionally, non-judgmentally, values you, uh, your oxytocin goes up. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone. That's what enables young mothers to not yell at their infants when the infant won't sleep through the night. And... What people don't know is that oxytocin directly counteracts high cortisol. And high cortisol is the stress hormone. And when cortisol gets high, it starts to – it readies our body to defend itself. But it also triggers something in our brain called an amygdala hijack. And what that means is the high cortisol signals our brain – to survive, and our survival part of our brain, our most primitive brain, thinks either fight, flight, or freeze. And meditation, uh, yoga, all those things help, but they don't necessarily increase oxytocin. They increase endorphins. They increase uh, uh, dopamine and pleasure. But oxytocin directly counters the uh, high cortisol. And and this is why uh, this may be a tip for people listening in about their personal relations. Frequently in personal relations, there'll be one partner who tries to be helpful by giving advice and solutions that the other person doesn't want. You'll also see this with parents and teenagers. What they really want is... They, they want a burst of oxytocin to lessen their agitation, and when their agitation is lessened, uh, their cortisol goes down, their amygdala settles down, and blood flow goes back to their upper brain where they can make up their own decisions
1: solve the problem for themselves yeah
0: absolutely whereas whereas if you're agitated and they're making you nervous and you're not very good with emotions and 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 you start throwing advice at them or you tell them to calm down what happens is that is that increases their cortisol because what they're looking for is the for you to hear them and feel felt by you so here's a tip yeah. that you can use yeah. if uh, if this is going on in one of your relationships, what you say, if you're the person who is more comfortable with solving problems and giving advice, what you say in a calm moment to the other person is, when we get into a uh, conflict, uh, I'm going to ask you if this is an awareness conversation or an advice conversation because if it's an awareness conversation it's going to take the pressure off me to come up with a solution if all you want me to do is be aware of it so you don't feel alone with it then i'm just going to keep helping you talk it out then then the whole purpose of it is to help you get everything off your chest and then realize that once you get things off your chest you'll calm down you'll probably come up with your own solution but but when but when we get into it i'm going to i'm going to ask you, is this an awareness or a conversation where you want my advice? And I can tell you 90% of the time, it's they they don't want your advice.
1: Yeah. yeah it reminds me of this. There's a famous video that I often share around called The Nail that shows this <laughs> young woman. Have you, have you seen this one? <laughs> I, I
0: love <laughs> it. I love it. Yes.
1: I'll post it. I'll post it along with the show uh, show notes. It's It's a really fun 20 seconds, but- it, yeah. Most of the time people do, they want, they'll, they'll, they'll offer the awareness conversation. Now, now here's the thing, Mark, and, and this is where you and I, I, I get myself into trouble and, and I need your help. Um, on this podcast in my life, I'm a very pro social person. I'm a person who's always promoting, reaching out, seeking to understand using listening skills And and so the people that are drawn to listen to to my stuff care about other people and that are are touched by other people's needs and want to make things better for other people and all of that. And sometimes those people get in a lot of trouble because they get into relationships with people that take advantage of that or that are toxic and, and unsafe for them. And they have these wide open hearts. And they keep getting messages from people like me and sometimes I guess people like you sort of, you know, touting the benefits of connection and smiling at people and, and asking them questions about their day and connecting with them. But they don't necessarily, they're not, they're not in a sense, they're not wary enough of who's good to connect with and who's not. And so sometimes they struggle with this thing, these boundaries, and, and and they get trampled over in boundaries. And I'm wondering if, given your skill and experience at connecting with some of the most difficult people in the world, I'm wondering if you have anything to say about boundaries. And and I mean, is, is there a sense in which it can go too far? Is there a danger in yeah, not being, absolutely in being too much of a connector?
0: Yeah. So I'll share with you and your listeners something that I've learned recently because. I've allowed myself in my early 70s to be uh, – I've never liked the word judgmental because it seems, it seems like a hurtful word. But in the last 10 years, I've embraced the word discerning. I don't, I don't think I'm – I think it's okay to be discerning. Uh, I personally have problems with the word judgmental because I've known judgmental people, and and they hurt other people. <clears throat> so, something that has informed my discernment is uh, when I'm with people, uh, I'm on un- I'm semi-consciously somewhere between thinking it consciously and unconsciously. I'm classifying people into is this a giver. Is this a taker or is this a receiver? And at this stage of my life, I only allow givers into it. And givers are people who you can give to freely and and they just naturally reciprocate. They say, "Mark, I've got to do something for you. No, no, you don't have to. Let's, uh, 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 just, the, just the gift of our having a, a friendship in which we're both givers is, 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 is plenty enough. Then there, there are the takers who uh, uh, always want something from you and are very hesitant to give you anything. And one of the things that I do now, and it's a little bit passive-aggressive, but at my age I'm allowing myself to be that way, <laughs> is, you know, my gut will sometimes tell me when I'm dealing with a taker. And I'll tell you, you see this all over the internet where people are wanting to sell, they're wanting to do something for you and whatever. Oh, I oh, let us do something. And so when my gut tells me, hmm, this could be a taker, uh, I'll I'll have some fun with them and and I may offer them something and I'll say, oh, that reminds me of something you could do for me. And I'll, Always have at the ready something that they really could do for me that is exactly at the same level of generosity of what I'm doing for them. And when you're dealing with a dyed in the wool taker, as soon as you flip it to af- after you've said yes to them, you say, Oh, that reminds me of something you can do for me. And if they say no, Oh, no, I can't, I won't be able to do that. Oh, just, I'm sorry. Uh, I often then say, You know, Um, one of the kinds of people I can't stand are people who give give and take it back. And I'd say, and I don't like people who give and then take it back, but I just became one. (laughs) I say to them, and they say, what? I said, you know, you got me to say yes to a few things, and I've given you every opportunity to give me the slightest bit in return, and you have failed. You have failed. It's off the table. Bye. No. Goodbye. And so, I, I, I allow myself to do that. What's really interesting when we're talking about boundaries, those are the people who are the receivers. They're in the middle of the bell-shaped curve. And those are the people who are happy to receive from you uh, and they won't spontaneously offer to do something for you. But if you ask them, they will politely do it, but they won't be as enthusiastic as a giver. I mean, a giver will spontaneously at the end of uh, a conversation saying, you know, you've been so generous, you've been so helpful. What can we do for you? I mean, sometimes when I'm on these podcasts and – Uh, The the hosts, uh, because I make connections between people, they'll say, how can we help you? So, at this stage of my life, I'm only allowing givers into my life because uh, I have to look forward to being able to see people again. (laughs) And I look forward to seeing givers again, and I don't particularly look forward to seeing receivers or takers.
1: And in some ways, it's developmental. I mean, we all start life as pure takers, you know, babies that – we require constant attention and we have very little to offer um, initially except our cuteness. Um, But, and as we grow older, you know, I I can remember distinct moments in my childhood where I became aware that I had the ability to positively impact another person's life. And it was a, there's, there was a sense for me of almost a kind of power that came with that. Like, Oh, I can make that old person happy, or oh, I can forgive this person and relieve them from this horrible feeling that they're feeling uh, of moral loss. And 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 there are people. I think that the the givers of the world are people that have sort of figured out the alchemy and have realized, like, gosh, this is really a good deal for both of us. This giving thing. Um, And sometimes the receivers, it seems to me, are people that, for whatever reason nature or nurture or experiences that they had, they didn't get that giving thing turned on. And sometimes it can be turned on very late in life. I've seen people figure out that they have something to offer, figure out that they can, that they can positively transform other people's lives for the better late in the game. And they go like, Oh my gosh, this is, I never knew this was here. Um, But then there are those takers and they never, they, they don't figure it out and they're not really interested in figuring it out. Um, yeah,
0: I think you, you make several good points and I, and I like the first one that you made. That, that There's a certain power to realize that with just a little bit of attention, we're not even talking about material goods, but just the gift of a little attention can be phenomenal to someone. Uh, if you watch my tedx talk what what made you smile today i believe i share an anecdote i hope uh, i'm remembering it correctly but uh, i remember there was a young man in india named arul and uh, uh, and i'm as likely to return an email to someone who's homeless in india and drop the ball of a fortune 500 ceo it's it's a, my priorities are a little bit messed up if i <laughs> if i think about that but uh, maybe it's because I'm touched by the person who's struggling in India. But I remember I had an exchange with him and then I tried out the exercise. I said, a rule. This was all an email. A rule. What made you smile today? And he wrote back, no one is as, no one as important as you has ever typed my name. So I go back to my computer every day and I touch the screen where you typed it. That changed his, that changed his life and and I got much more out of it than he did. yeah I mean just yeah j- just the power of a in fact, if you're listening in and you have any kind of celebrity or you're well known or anything like that, I think one of the gifts that you have, and I actually think it's a responsibility if you're prominent, you're well-known, you can cause someone who feels completely invisible to feel visible. Because when they look at you, they will sometimes gawk at you. I remember years ago when I had some celebrity clients, they would say, I can't stand it when you know, they're walking around Beverly Hills and people are just staring at me. And I said, what you have to realize is those people who are staring at you, they feel invisible compared to you. I mean, they literally feel invisible. They don't know that they're intruding on you because to them, they're nobody and you're somebody. And they don't know that they're intruding, especially if they're fans. And look, that's part of what comes with your celebrity. That's what comes with part of your fame. And it's helped you make your fortune. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and, and what's funny is, is that you can be a celebrity at your high school. You can be a celebrity in your office. You can be, you know, that there's always a hierarchy in which some people feel unseen or they, or where they look up to a particular person and think, wow, that's the, that's the, he's the cool guy or she's the, she's the smart one in the room. And whenever you're in that position on the on the positive end of a power imbalance, there's there's an opportunity to make somebody feel seen, to make somebody feel um, valuable uh, in in very small ways. And you're right; it can it can make a big a big impact. But but you know, I, I had an experience the other the, a few weeks ago, actually on this podcast, where I encountered a woman who was from a very marginalized group of people. Um, she's a trans woman and she was a secular trans woman who had grown up in the church. And so she'd been marginalized eight ways to Sunday. Um, and in the conversation, one of the things that she brought to my attention was she, she felt like there were people who had no room for her, who, who didn't, who would have voted against her right to exist? Who who didn't want her to have a job? Who didn't want her to have a place in society? And 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 she sort of was really pointed to me and saying like, I don't owe those people anything. I don't I don't ever want to relate to them. I don't I don't want to give them the time of day. I I I don't want to take the time to understand their point of view or why they might be operating out of a fear basis. You know, because I was doing my typical thing of like, hey. When people are on the other side of the fence, we need to try to understand them and try to figure out where they're coming from and have compassion. Because if we'd have grown up the way they grew up, we'd be like them. And she was like, Nope, Bart, I don't think so. And, you know, that was a boundary that she was drawing where she was saying, like, hey, these are toxic people, and I will not, I will not relate to them politically, I will not relate to them personally. And, you know, some of them are in my own family, she said, and I'm not going to deal with them. And You know, when you were talking about the givers and the takers and the receivers, I was thinking that works well when people are approaching you, kind of offering you a deal or or asking to be in friendship or in a neighborhood association. But what if they're in your own family? What do you deal? What What do you do with people in your own world who are these difficult people or these toxic people? How, How do you? How do you set a boundary with somebody within a relationship rather than setting a boundary that says, I'm not going to have a relationship with you?
0: Well, here are some uh, tips that, again, you have to modify them to fit the circumstance. But there's something that I mention in several of my books, and it's called assertive humility. Assertive humility. And the way it works, let's say it's someone in your family. And you know it's just a, a difficult relationship. Uh, but you've reached the point where you reach the point where you think to yourself, "I'm not sure I want to continue the relationship." So you have to reach the point where where you say, "You know, I think I'd be okay if we never saw each other again." Once you reach that point internally, then what I suggest to people is uh, that's okay to do. But have you given it your best effort? And here's my definition of a best effort. You reach out to the person and you say, uh, and you can text them. You can say, I've been thinking about something and I, I'd like your help with it. When might we be able to have a conversation? And again, they may not even respond, but people, someone you know might be intrigued. Well, what's this about? Uh, and. You can say it's just something I'd, I'd like your uh, I'd like your help with, and that that can be a very disarming thing to say. That's why it's called it's assertive humility. Mm-hmm. And what you say to them is, you know, you're my brother-in-law, you're my sister, you're my, you're my mom, you're my dad, you're my you're my whatever, uh, and I'm close to. I'm very close to wanting to avoid you and maybe have nothing to do with you ever again. And I don't want to reach that point. And I'd like your help because, you know, we are related. You are my cousin, you are my brother, you are my sister. And and the reason I'm close to wanting to avoid you and have nothing to do with you, and then you just you just lay out behaviors, you don't say anything about their personality, but you say, you know, uh, the reason I'm close to that is because you say this, and this is what you do. We say this, and you agree, and then this is what you do. And uh, and in uh, going forward, I'd like to not avoid you and like to not cut you out of my life. But I don't have much control over it. You do. And that's what I'd like your help with. And, and I'm perfectly okay with you saying anywhere from no thank you or go F yourself or whatever you can say, whatever you like. But before I take those steps to avoid and maybe have nothing to do with you, I thought I'd give this a try.
1: Has that worked?
0: Yes. Now, now, if you're dealing with someone who's a dyed-in-the-wool person who enjoys hurting others. So, I'm, I also make a distinction. Here's another one of my distinctions. Like, we have the, the givers, the takers, and receivers. I make a distinction between people who don't know any better uh, and do something versus people who do know better and just don't care. And uh, and again, those people who just who do know better, but they just don't care about being hurtful or mean or whatever, you know. I, I put them as in the category of the takers, and most of them, by the way, are takers. And so, uh, I uh, you know, I use my discernment filter, but I will run that by them, and then I, I'm fine with them having the last word, but at least. You know, when I coach people, Bart, I, my my coaching is I can help you come up with the most honest, direct, and gracious conversation you can have with another human being. Uh, You have very little control over how they'll react to it. But I can coach most people in having conversations where after you say it, you can walk away and say to yourself, I cannot be more Gracious,
1: gracious yeah uh, i feel good about what i said
0: and respectful than that i mean that's the best that i can be but i don't have any control over the other person and by the way if you learn uh, to be that way you know uh, you can say you know you know sh- uh, should you want to uh, reconsider this you can always come back to me but it has to it has to meet you know some of the criteria we talked about yeah so, yeah
1: so i mean So it sounds like, and you know, you, you talk about it as if, well, I'm older now. And so I, I, you know, I don't have time to waste, you know, I'm I'm not willing to put myself in these situations. So I, I cut out the takers in a hurry, but in some sense, (laughs) life is short for all of us, right? Like, you know, if you really think about it, do any of us really have time to, 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 or energy to spend? In relationships that are toxic, or or, or that are going to drain drain us of the ability to uh, the energy that we that would be better stewarded used on people that are are more deserving of it. And so, I guess it sounds like you're pretty much saying, like, hey, you know what? You need to think through what your categories are. But there are categories of people that it is absolutely okay for you to graciously maybe giving them that one last chance, uh, you know, a, 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 but it's okay for you to cut people out of your life.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, uh, I wish I'd done it many years and- ago. Uh, and, um, and and I think you're doing a disservice. So, it, here's an interesting uh, uh, approach that I thought that really helps you to cut out the – um, the takers and the grabbers and the really bad people in your life, people who mean you no, uh, who mean you ill and not well. W- what happened is in the last probably 40 years, I've been blessed and fortunate to be hanging out with really good people. I mean, people who care about the world, people who care about making a difference. And, you know, for a long time, I had the Groucho Marx uh, uh, approach like a, uh, how could I join a club that would uh, have me as a member? You know uh, there must be something wrong with it but but what what's happened is what I've discovered when I'm around those people, the givers um, it causes me to become physiologically ill when I'm around the takers. So I think when you start someone said we are judged by the five people closest to us, by the company we keep. And so, I think if you increase the company that you keep to people that you feel honored and privileged and proud to call your friend, then what happens is it becomes clearer and clearer those other people uh, who only want to take from you. And, and what happens is it becomes easier to cut your losses because y- you literally start to feel a knot in your stomach, you know, a knot in your chest. and uh, and whereas if you're only hanging out with uh, those people who are uh, flawed in these character traits, you know, then, you know, water seeks its own level. And why not swim to a different pool where you're with people that it's an honor to call your friends?
1: Yeah. I, I As I was – the first part of what you're saying, I was going like, yeah, you're so lucky. I'm so lucky I get, you know, when I think about the people that surround me, I'm just surrounded by givers Mm -hmm. and surrounded, you know, and, but I I sometimes think like, yeah, you know, I've been so fortunate in life. And some of the people that I work with that come to me in therapy, um, they've had horrible families and they've, been they're surrounded by takers and they've been surrounded by violence and they've been surrounded by hurt. And and if they heard you and I talking like we were just were, they would say, easy for you to say, pal, where am I going to find those five people? Um I'm not those people are not attracted to me. Or I don't seem to know where to find them. Or well, you know, well, I, I, uh, I, I and I don't know if you've had this experience where people are like, yeah, take a take a hike, buddy, because Good people are in short supply in my world.
0: Well, places you can find them. I mean, there are these social platforms, whether it's Clubhouse or uh, I'm, I host the room on Twitter spaces uh, that I do a couple times a week. Uh, it's it's uh, it, it seems to have an evolving name to the room, uh, the latest one, which I can't guarantee – will still be the name of the room uh, uh, by the time this this post is called why cope when you can heal and it's for people who you know have had a fair amount of trauma and 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 they cope and coping is better than not coping but it's not the same as feeling fully alive and that, that was one of the reasons my co-author and I wrote this book why cope when you can heal it's a short book it's a, it's out there it's about 120 pages And, you know, because people have been traumatized, the majority of people have been traumatized. I I wouldn't even say the majority of them cope well. I mean, they cope the best they can. uh, But healing is different than coping. You know, when I reached out to people I knew who had been traumatized and mentioned, oh, uh, I'm co-authoring a book called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And when I reach out to people and tell them the title, especially the women I know had been traumatized, they immediately tear up. You know, that's the mirror neuron (laughs) gap being eliminated. And I'd say, what's going on? They say, if only. And I'd say, if only what? They'd say, if only I could heal. I'd say, what do you mean? They'd say, I cope. Cope is better than not coping. But I'm not the same. I'm not the same as I was before my trauma and I ask them, what do you mean? They say, I have fun, but I don't have joy. I get exhausted. I don't have peace. And I'm tentative. I'm tentative wherever I go. I'm always checking to see if there's something there that can hurt me. And so I walk through life with my guard up and I cope, but it's exhausting. And why cope when you can heal? You know, talks about surgical empathy and how how to safely go down into the depths of the emotions that you weren't, uh, the feelings and the thoughts that you suppressed and repressed in order to survive the trauma. So that's a that's my uh, hypothesis on a lot of trauma is that while you're trying to survive it, and the subtitle of it is how Healthcare heroes of COVID-19 can recover from PTSD, Uh, but it'll work for anybody who's been traumatized because when you're in the middle of a trauma, you're doing everything you can to survive. And and two of the things you need to do is you got to suppress the thoughts that you're not going to survive and you got to repress the feelings because otherwise you'll be thrown into a full-on panic and not be able to function at all. And so what happens is healthcare workers, veterans, anybody who's been traumatized, you, you push it away and you push it away and adrenaline comes in. Adrenaline and testosterone comes in. So you feel incredibly powerful and you feel, wow, I must be really strong. But what's happened is, and you'll see this with uh, uh, athletes, Olympic athletes, and why so many of them go into deep depression afterwards, is that when you're running on adrenaline, uh, uh to, to sort of deal with life. And, uh, and the trauma goes away or the stardom goes away, the adrenaline rush goes away. And when the adrenaline rush goes away, that's what helps you insulate yourself from all the thoughts and feelings that would have gotten in the way. And when you take that insulation away, those thoughts and feelings that you pushed away want to come up and rip you apart.
1: Yeah. You know, and I, I want to just, I want to just amplify that because one of the things I'm learning is that I always thought that I'm in the middle of this trauma. So I push away like the thoughts and feelings and I run on adrenaline and I'm strong and I power through and then the thing is over and people say, and then you're going to crash. And, or, or the, and, and then the person does crash and 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 maybe even their life is good, like life, everything's going well, and they feel terrible on the other side of the challenge or on the other side of the of the of the task or the trauma. And what what they'll keep telling me is like that they're they're like I'm not having flashbacks, I'm not thinking about the trauma, I'm not. I just feel depressed, I just feel down, I just feel anxious. And so what they're expecting is that literally it will be the same thought that they should have had. A year and a half ago and they're like they're expecting to sort of have that thought come up and what they don't realize is is that it's 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 sometimes the thoughts and feelings that they're coping with are more general and they're not you know they're not they're not as specific as a particular flashback they're just kind of this overall sense of being overwhelmed or an overall sense of sadness or an overall sense. Do do, do you know what I'm saying? That sometimes I think people are expecting that it will be a one for one. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to have the Thursday from that year. All of a sudden I'm going to experience it again. And I'm like, that's, it's not always that specific, but 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 these but in general these thoughts and feelings that you repress they're going to come back when they get a chance.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think you're exactly right. It's it's not like there's some magical television movie moment where they re-experience and they are set free forever. Uh,
1: like like in the movies, that's exactly what they yeah, show yeah. you in the movies is the person reliving the scene.
0: Yeah, uh, but, but the thing the thing is once we, when we're traumatized, there's like a ripple effect. And so there's little ripple currents from while we're going through the trauma. Um, you know, w- one of the metaphors that I give people that are uh, helpful, and I learned this from a a a woman patient. She she uh, had an only child who was viciously murdered. I mean, viciously murdered. I can't even go into it because it's it's just too vicious. But it was her only child, and and I was seeing her, and uh, uh, I didn't think I was helping her. I mean, she was seeing me, and she wasn't suicidal, but she was, why go on, why go on, why go on? And I referred her to a group, a support group, which I'm, I'm a great fan of, of specific support groups that are focused on your particular w- challenge. Because otherwise, other no matter what anyone else says, you're going to say, well, it's easy for you to say it didn't happen to you. So I referred to a group called uh, Parents of Murdered Children. Uh, the leader of the Los Angeles chapter was Sharon Tate's m- mother. Sharon Tate was you know, murdered by Charles Manson. And they would have meetings, and it would be mostly mothers. Fathers could be invited, but it was probably just uh, you know, they would just keep busy. And they would just talk about, you know, what's the status of uh, of uh, finding the perpetrator and getting getting justice. and But they would all share what the murder was. And I, I don't think I was making progress with her one-on-one, but I did get her to uh, join this organization. And then what happened is younger mothers would adopt her, you know, because they would be newer into that group that you wouldn't want to be a member of, uh, uh, and they would attach to her. So she became like a surrogate mother. And one of the things she said to me, she said, "You know, and she was a, a good deal older than the other uh, mothers. And she said, "You know life is like the rings of a tree. and the rings of a tree are demonstrate what that tree goes through every year. And if you look at some trees, you know, you can see when there's been a fire, when there's been a flood, you know, by the characteristic of the rings. She said, if you buy a synthetic tree, you know, where all the rings are symmetric, they lack character. And she said, she said, what it really comes down to is you need to build new memories to dilute the impact of that memory that was so tra- uh, traumatizing. And she says, and you build new memories by actions taken not thoughts thought and so what had happened is she built new memories because these other young mothers attached to her and made her the surrogate mother for them and you know and then she you know she went on to found a foundation i think in her daughter's name so uh, yeah i agree with you it's not any one thing specific but i thought that was a Really a wise approach that she had uh, is that uh, uh, when you've been through trauma, what you want to do is build new memories to dilute the impact of that bad ring of the tree year that you went through. And what I'm discovering with healthcare workers, because I co-authored these books with a wonderful woman that I'm launching in the world, and she should be on your show. Her name is Dr. Diana Handel. She was the CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital when an employee of the month came in and killed his two supervisors and himself. And she led the hospital back to financial and psychological soundness. And she's really one of my heroes. And one of the things she taught me that brought the hospital back is, is, uh, uh, yes, you cope by staying active but the, the activities need to feel purposeful and meaningful as opposed to just keeping busy. She said she, yeah, she thinks it was that, that they all had a sense of purpose, that they serve their community, they serve patients that came in, uh, and it, it was really helpful that those activities that would dilute the impact of that year were purposeful activities.
1: Well, you know, that may be, I mean, and what's interesting is, is that, you know, you talked about the support groups, uh, that you've recommended people to, and then you talk about this, you know, that, that those people doing meaningful activities. And it does seem to me that when people have toxic relationships in their lives and you and I say to them, well, you need to find, you know, givers, you need to find better people. Um, and, and they say, well, I don't know where to find them. You know, and I, I think that what's interesting is is that people that are trying to heal, people that are at a support group trying to overcome the death of their son or their daughter, people are a support group trying to support a kid with an addiction or whatever the the thing is. People who have transitioned out of the faith, like you have, and they're trying to figure out how to make their lives work. On the other hand there's a sense in which those are almost by definition latent givers. Like they're trying to heal themselves. And so there's a sense in which they're, they're reaching out for more life. They're reaching out to make things better. It's, it's maybe even just starting with themselves, but they're not, Laying there, waiting for somebody to come and heal them. They're reaching out. They're they're an active healer, and I th- I think that when when people are trying to f- say when people say to us, where am I going to go find these people to to, to that are going to be more positive relationships in my in my life? I think like yeah, you look for people that are involved in giving, but I think even more so, you look in, look for people that are involved in healing. And who are trying to grow because there's something about somebody that's trying to grow that I think opens them to being more of a giver. Um, I, I, I seldom see people in these support groups that are really working in the support group. That are pure takers because the, the people in the group are also hurting. That if somebody shows up and they're a taker, they kind of get marginalized pretty quickly and, and made to feel unwelcome. In, in those support group settings, you can you can be needy, but you can't be greedy. You know, you can be needy, but you can't be a taker, or else they won't have you for very long. And so, in some ways, I think defining yourself as a person who's figuring out how how you've been hurt or where, you, where you're vulnerable is in many ways a step towards. I, if you can identify yourself in that way, you can find people that are trying to overcome that. I, I think there's something there. Um, so, so I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but there's a no, big part of me oh, that wants that wants to give people hope this way.
0: No, no I, I think uh, – no, you're making a lot of sense because I, because I think if you're looking to heal – um, you're more open. You're 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 more on a a journey. Um, uh, when, uh, uh, it's interesting. One of my favorite uh, quotes comes from a pastor friend of mine, John Depau. He's the pastor at Thad's uh, Church in Los Angeles, uh, and it's an experimental, wonderful church. And I'm Jewish, and I attend the church uh, because it's just so inclusive. And he said, uh, when you're in pain and you uh, and you pray for someone to take the pain away, you're disempowering yourself. He says, what's a better thing to do is to pray for the courage to be able to handle the pain. And be able to do it with grace. Because then you take your power back. And... Uh, uh, and I agree with you. I think people that are on a journey of healing, uh, so, so, something I'll share with you uh, that I uh, that goes sort of along with what we're talking about right now is for years uh, when I was actively practicing and I do psychotherapy with depressed people and anxious people, sometimes some of the depressed people, when I'd say, what's really going on? And, and there's a technique that I have called the five reallys where, you know, you repeat what the person says. And I understand that's tough, but what's really going on? And I learned that from a friend of mine uh, in the Marines who helped transitioning Marines. And when you get to like the fourth or fifth, really, people tell you what's really going on. And you're not saying it to aggravate them. And you can say, no, I realize it's tough and I realize, I realize you're depressed, but what's really going on? And with a number of my patients, what they'd say is, I don't know if I deserve to be happy because I am a hundred percent self absorbed. I mean, way down deep. I just care about myself. And, and maybe people like me don't deserve to be happy because all we do is care about ourselves. And that gave me a realization and something that I then started doing. I started giving patients boxes of healthy snacks. And I said, uh, Every day when you're on a walk, I want you to have some of these in your pocket. And when you pass a homeless person, I want you to go up to them. Don't scare them. Say, "Uh, hi, my my name's Mark. What's your name? You know, homeless people have names uh, that may surprise people, but they are people. And you go up to them and say, hi, my name's Mark. What's your name? And they might be hesitant, and they'll tell you their name. Uh. Or they don't have to tell you their name. And then you pull out a healthy snack and you say, here, I hope this makes it a little better. Because a number of people are hesitant to give money to homeless people because they're going to use it for alcohol or drugs. And I said, just do that. And uh, once a day, but always carry these healthy snacks with you. And most of those people, and it won't surprise you, but when they come back a week later, (laughs) they would begrudgingly say, it worked. What worked? I feel a little better. Why? Well, because some days I give something to someone and they just look at me and they just started crying with thanks.
1: Oh, well, you know maybe you earned a little bit the right to be happy. What do you think? It's interesting <laughs> that whole idea that people feel like people's pain. And there's nothing that makes us selfish more than pain. Like you know if you smash my hand with a hammer, I'm not thinking about anybody else for about five minutes. Um, pain really makes us focus on ourselves. And yet, when we stay focused on ourselves for too long, that idea of like, we feel worthless, we feel bad about ourselves. we it, It's unnatural. It's not the way, you know, it's not the way we, we're social beings. We're not wired to be selfish. And so if we get self-absorbed, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And so, yeah a simple exercise that sort of says like, Hey, I'm just going to try to get you to be aware of other people in a different way can sometimes be very, very relieving and healing. And so, you know, it, it, it feels to me as as you know, as I'm, I'm just looking at the time and thinking like, I got to let this guy go at some point, but um, it feels to me like you're, your commitment is to relationships and connections and 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 to to compassion and 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 asking people, you know, what made you smile today? And and, and you, you have all these sort of, you know, the listening skills that are in the one book, the 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 authentic speaking skills that are in the other books, you know, like there are all these you, you, there's this commitment to inner relationship and to connection but what i hear you saying over and over again is that you have to that you have to your commitment to relationships needs to be tempered by discernment a discernment of who people really are a discernment of what they really need not 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 what they're telling you to give them a, a discernment of the, who's safe to let into your life and who you've got to put up some boundaries to keep them out. So it, it feels like you're like radical compassion, radical empathy, tempered by discernment.
0: Yeah. No, Am I, I hearing I, you right? I, I agree with you. i, I, I you know, we'll, we'll end. I remember another uh, anecdote before COVID, there was a, uh, a middle-aged man. He obviously had a stroke. He was homeless. He was kind of loping along on the sidewalk. He was walking. Uh, he had torn slippers, and one of his arms was—you could tell—was uh, paralyzed. And but there was a certain quiet nobility. He was—he didn't have a sign. He wasn't begging for anything. He wasn't trying to intrude on anyone. He was just trying to make it through a very difficult life. And I was going for a walk, and you know, and I passed him, and then. But something about his not being intrusive, you know, not uh, not standing in the way with a sign right next to Whole Foods, you know, where they many congregate. Right. Um, and it it just struck me, and and I walked back to him, and you know, I walked up to him. I didn't want to scare him, and I put a a fifty dollar bill in his good hand. And he looked at it and he stared at me. And he looked at it and then he stared at me. And his eyes filled with tears. And as they filled with tears, he looked at me and he said, I love you. I gotta tell you, it was one of the best fifty dollars I've ever spent.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, I didn't have to spend fifty bucks, but it was really great talking with you. I really appreciate not not just now. I appreciate the conversation, but I also just appreciate the, the the life, the life that you've lived that's led you to be able to, to talk so eloquently about the nature of relationships.
0: Well, I appreciate the platform and the, the honor was all mine.
1: All right, there it is. There it was. That was my conversation with Mark Golston. That was a talk, right? There was stuff in there. There was stuff. Yeah. I I'm glad I got to know him. And I'm I'm looking forward to reading some of the stuff he recommended. And uh I, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we get him back here at some point. And he's got some people he wants me to meet. Maybe we'll have them. I don't know. But I'm just I, you know, if you're out there, Mark, thank you. This was good. This was good. Listen, I promised a quote on the other side of the podcast and I've got one. And it's it's a little bit of a cheap quote. Because like when people would, when there were Bible verse memory contests and you had to memorize a Bible verse, you know, I, I quickly learned that the, the best verse to give to a little kid was Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. And, and you guys know I love Ingersoll. And I just found the Ingersoll version of Jesus wept. The shortest verse of Ingersoll that encapsulates so much of what he says, and I think, and we're trying to do. And so I'm going to give you a quote. I can't believe I and, and like I, this isn't cheating. I just didn't know it was out there. And I I, I was I was reading some stuff the other other week, and I, I came across. It. I thought, geez, how did I miss this one? It's as simple as this. We rise by lifting others. We rise by lifting others. Think about that today. Think about that. Think about if you want to rise today, if you want to feel something, if you want to, if you want to feel like the day was worthwhile and ask yourself, is there anyone out there who you can lift? In some small or great way, is there anyone out there who you can lift their spirit, who you can lift their countenance, who you can lift them up? That's just a thought. We rise by lifting others. That guy didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in heaven. There was no reward. He was just like, look, (laughs) most of us want to rise. Most of us want to feel great. Most of us want to stop languishing. And Ingersoll He understood the basic truth. We rise by lifting others. Go do it. I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram you can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group just search humanize me on Facebook to ask your own question on the show leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092 that's 424-291-2092 and finally Please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life. Oh